Okay, Avengers, Brotherhood, X-Factor, I know I'm missing something. Hey, Miles, what's up to? I'm trying to put together a list of every team Quicksilver's been on. Um, all of them? That's ridiculous, man. Okay, so help me out here. Fine. Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, a uh, couple iterations of the Avengers, couple iterations of X-Factor, Knights of Vundagore. Knights of Vundagore? Yeah, yeah, they're a bunch of the new men. The new men? The animals that the High Evolutionary evolved up. Oh, right, yeah, like the cow lady who delivered the Maximoff kids. Exactly. Anyway, at one point, the High Evolutionary was worried about the coming of Khthan. Khthan? Yeah, first practitioner of black magic, one of the demonic elder gods spawned by the sentient life force of Earth. Was that even words? Anyway, the High Evolutionary decided that the best solution to this dilemma was clearly to train up a bunch of the new men as knights. Sure, why not? They mostly ended up dying, but they were pretty cool while they lasted. You know, chivalry, fancy robot horses. Wait, robot horses? Like the Black Knights? Dude, the Black Knight's horse is one of the Vundagore robot horses. Beast took it home after a fight back when he was an Avenger, and later on the Black Knight adopted it. Oh, where did the Knights of Vundagore get them? Uh, the High Evolutionary built them. I probably should have guessed that. With the help of a 6th century wizard ghost who had possessed his lab assistant. What?! J. Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 84 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. And we are coming back this time to X-Factor, everyone's favorite band of miserable mutants. Yeah, where the X-Men really earn their soap opera status. That they do. This episode, we're going to be continuing our lead up to the fall of the mutants. But first, we're going to take a brief digression and look at X-Factor Annual Number 2, which I think we skipped when it first came up because it's relevant to absolutely nothing. That said, there are some kind of cool moments in here and also some kind of bizarre moments, and I enjoy both of those things. So this is an inhuman story. Do we want to talk about that at all? I feel like I know almost nothing about the Inhumans. Okay, I'll see if I can oversimplify. The Inhumans were created by the Kree, effectively. Right, I know that. I know about their origin. I don't really know much about them as characters or their interaction with the rest of the Marvel Universe. Oh, okay. Well, they've largely interacted with the Marvel Universe through the Fantastic Four, and the Inhumans that tend to get focused on are the Inhuman Royal Family. Now, they're led by Black Bolt, whose voice can level mountains, and so he never talks. He's the one with the tuning fork in his head, right? He totally is. And That's really silly. His wife, Medusa, who has, like, giant red hair that she can do stuff with, which always struck me as a very strange power for somebody who's supposed to be all regal and noble and, like, respectable and stuff. And Medusa's sister is Crystal, who is, at this point, the point that this takes place, I believe, actually a member of the Fantastic Four, or at least running around with them. Yeah, and she is Quicksilver's wife slash ex-wife. They're on the rocks right now. They have a daughter named Luna, who's very small. Right. I mean, I feel like that's kind of all the background you really need for this, so I guess party on. Yeah, I mean, there are a few more. There's Gorgon and Triton and Karnak, but uh, those are the focal ones that we I just I like mentioned. the one who's a giant dog. Uh, that would be Lockjaw, who is in fact a giant dog, who also has a tuning fork on his head. Tuning forks are really big. They're all the rage and in human fashion, humans, dogs, whatever, they can all have them. And they live on the moon. They used to live in the Himalayas, but now they live on the moon. Right. You know, Himalayas to the moon. It's like we moved from Florida to North Carolina to Oregon. Same kind of deal. Right. They don't they don't actually live on the moon in current Marvel continuity, actually. But at the point where the story takes place, they definitely live on the moon. Yes. And in fact, the title of X-Factory Annual Number 2 is The Man in the Moon. Now, this story is actually not written by the X-Factor ongoing writer, Louis Simonson, which is unusual for an annual at this point in time, but it is written by Joe Duffy, who is the writer of Fallen Angels, and the artist is a guy named Tom Grindberg, who's done a lot of stuff, uh, most notably Silver Surfer. And who draws super weird faces. Man, I gotta say, I don't really have any basis for comparison with Grindberg, but Joe Duffy, man, this issue is not her best work. It's an annual, it's kind of a one-off story that doesn't really interact too much with the continuity of X-Factor at the time. But like I said, there are some cool little bits that I'd like to talk about. The issue opens with Franklin Richards walking around in a strange, misty dream. Franklin Richards seems to be the center of a lot of X-Men annuals. He really is. You see a lot of pre-Excalibur stuff, a lot of British stuff, and you see a lot of Franklin Richards. He was a big deal in the X-Men vs. Fantastic Four miniseries. Yeah, he was. And now Franklin Richards, again, is the kid of Reed and Sue Richards. His powers at this point involve sort of astral projection and these things he calls his special dreams. Again, he's four. We're not going to make that joke, and we'd appreciate it if you didn't either. <laughs> exactly. And these are generally sort of varyingly obliquely prophetic dreams. Yeah. And it becomes pretty clear to any reader familiar with him that that's what's going on. He's hanging out in the mist, there's this weird pounding, and the man in the moon, who the reader recognizes as Quicksilver, picks him up and carries him to the moon, which then explodes. 
And he's running around with a power pack at this point. I'm not sure if his family is still missing or if he's just buddies with them, if they're just hanging out for fun. Just buddies right now. But the power pack are super, super unimpressed with this dream. The power pack, again, quick recap, are a group of four siblings, the power siblings specifically, who have been granted powers by a unicorn-looking alien. Which is awesome. They are super great. The power pack is Louise Simonson's non-X ongoing series at this point, mostly with June Brigman, who I believe we talked about in the last New Mutants episode, but they're a great team. We highly recommend going back and reading that stuff if you haven't. The Power Pack are buds with Franklin Richards. And again, they are just not really buying this whole prophetic dream situation. They are super unimpressed, and they're kind of being jerks about it. They are. It's a little strange, but they are quickly met up with by a couple friends of theirs, Leech and Artie. They go back a long ways with Leech, who is one of the Morlocks that they've met in the Morlock tunnels. And Leech and Artie are being escorted by Cyclops and Marvel Girl. Have they seen him since they found his dead mom? Uh, I'm not really sure if they have, but they're all in pretty good spirits right now, at least. Awkward. Yeah. So they're all hanging out, the kids being kids, Artie being shy, Scott and Jean having a capital G-U grown-up conversation about, you know, the efficacy of X-Factor as an organization. Quick recap, X-Factor is an anti-mutant organization that hunts mutants, but really that's just a cover for the mutant superheroes who then rescue the mutants that X-Factor hears about. It's a terrible, terrible arrangement, largely because it was set up by an actual supervillain, but we'll get to that later in this episode. Very much so. And so not much time passes before the aforementioned man in the moon, Quicksilver, does in fact show up to try to kidnap Franklin. Now, I actually really love this part because, as you may recall, Leech's powers are that anybody who gets close to him, their own superpowers get nullified. So Quicksilver is going at super speed and then just sort of slows down to normal speed to pick up Franklin. I don't know why, but for some reason, Quicksilver trying to run at normal speed is the funniest thing in the world. Like, it's hilarious. I don't know why, because, like, other characters just run all the time, but somehow it's so, so funny if it's Quicksilver. Well, I kind of feel like if you have super speed, you don't really have to run with good form, so I just see him sort of flailing around super awkwardly, like he looks like the guy from Quop and is just staggering around everywhere and looks drunk. Aw, Quicksilver. And, you know, Leech cancels out Lockjaw's power, too, because Quicksilver is there with Lockjaw, and Lockjaw is a teleporter. And that confused me, because I thought Leech just canceled out mutant powers. Lockjaw's an inhuman. His powers come from the Terrigen Mists. Um, it's been ambiguous. Sometimes Leech just cancels out mutant powers. Sometimes he cancels out all superpowers. In this case, they seem to be going with a latter explanation. I try not to worry about it too much. Now, meanwhile, on the moon... I love that phrase. I'm just going to say that's the best segue ever, and I want to use it whenever possible. You know, I find that it's remarkably and consistently relevant in my life. I highly recommend becoming like an Apollo program nerd because you get to use that phrase a lot. Sweet. I'm there. You know, meanwhile, on the moon, Buzz Aldrin was turning into a werewolf. Oh, yeah. Just, just you know, just space history. Yeah. Actual space history. Real NASA facts. So, yes, meanwhile, on the moon, the Inhumans are all hanging out. Specifically, Gorgon and Luna are being adorable. And he's like, Wait, you know, who's Gorgon? Uh, Gorgon is one of the Inhumans. He's a big dude. And when he stomps on the ground, he can sort of make earthquakes. But he's bouncing Luna up and down. And, you know, who's the best girl on the moon? And she says, Luna, Luna, Luna. And it's really cute. But, is there a lot of competition? Well, as far as little girls, I don't think there are very many. No. You know, it's kind of low bar here. You don't tell that to the little kid. You let them feel She doesn't special. know the difference. Well, She's yeah. a baby. <laughs> I guess that's true. Well, regardless, so meanwhile, they're talking about the latest Inhuman Royal Family drama, which is, as we alluded to before, the fact that Crystal has left her husband Quicksilver and gone off to Earth. And so that's why Luna, their daughter, is staying with the Inhumans. And she's shacking up with Johnny Storm, right? I believe so, yeah. And Quicksilver has been doing sort of uncharacteristic evil things, like he betrayed the Avengers, got them into trouble, did the same to the Fantastic Four, is doing petty theft, which, you know, Quicksilver can certainly be a jerk, but that all seems a little out of character even for him. But how do you tell with Quicksilver? Because, I mean, he's kind of a petty jerk as a default. Like, even as a hero, he's very much that. He's, you know, the petty jerk in the moon. The petty jerk in the moon, the Pietro Maximoff story. So he actually quickly shows up, having teleported away from this brawl in the park with Lockjaw and Franklin Richards, and inadvertently, most of X-Factor. X-Factor in this case being a Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, and Iceman. Right, because Angel is dead. Well, ish. Sorry, let me rephrase, because to the best of contemporary readers' knowledge at this point, had they not yet picked up on the very heavy foreshadowing to the contrary, Angel is dead. Yes, and Caliban is elsewhere because he's not good at looking human because he looks like Caliban. Well, and he's only sort of on the team. True. He has a costume, but they don't tend to actually like let him come do X-Factor stuff with them. Regardless, we now have Quicksilver and Lockjaw and Franklin Richards and X-Factor minus Caliban on the moon in the inhuman royal city of Attilan. And we've got a few additional inhumans. So we know who Black Bolt and Medusa are. We know who Gorgon is. Who are these other guys? There's Triton, who's a fish guy. 
and Karnak, who is a guy who can find the flaw in anything and can thus break things with a touch. I really love that power, actually. That's very editor power. Warren Ellis is going to be writing a Karnak ongoing series pretty soon, and I'm very curious to see how that goes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a feeling that I don't recognize. Give me a second. What is the feeling? I, I'm kind of caring about an inhuman. Oh, weird, dude. I don't know how to navigate this. Just this is really strange. Take some deep breaths. It'll pass. I, uh, God, I, yeah. So anyway. Quicksilver and Lockjaw and X-Factor pop into this, and it's super awkward because, first of all, X-Factor isn't supposed to be there at all. You know, they're, they're not even supposed to be here today. Second, it's not where Lockjaw was supposed to port them. He was supposed to take them back to someone who Quicksilver refers to as the Master. Who unfortunately is not the Master from Manos, the Hands of Fate, which would have been awesome. Yeah, we will find out who he is later. But finally, by teleporting them to the throne room, Lockjaw has created an awkward encounter because there is someone there who's very happy to see Quicksilver, and that is his daughter Luna. Yeah, she just yells, da, 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 da. And he kind of freaks out because he was just going to run the hell away. But now he's seeing this person that means a ton to him. And his head starts pounding and pounding and pounding, which we learn about from Franklin Richards' narration. He narrates most of the issue. He and Lockjaw and Franklin, who they've nabbed, make like a banana and split, leaving X-Factor to have a long and real awkward conversation with the Inhuman Royal Family. Right. So they talk about the whole thing with Crystal leaving her husband and child for an old flame, which makes Cyclops think of exactly what he did with Madeline Pryor and his son Nathan Christopher when Jean Grey came back from the dead. Angst, 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 angst. There's a lot of angst in this issue. I think that's my favorite part of it, actually. The other angsty part is it quickly becomes clear that the city of Attilan is on top of the blue area of the moon, which is where Phoenix died. Which leads to a, you know more Jean angst about Phoenix and about Madeline and the best line in the issue, which I had to read like four times before it made sense. Yeah, me too. My rival, a woman, a being I can't compete fairly with because she's dead. Like his wife, Maddie, another doppelganger of me, and I never even knew her. But how can I beat these ghosts with my face? Let's parse that for a second. How can I beat these ghosts with my face? How can I beat these ghosts with my face? How with my face can I these ghosts beat? I mean, okay, I get what she's supposed to be saying, which is how can she compete with these ghosts who have the same face that she has? It really sounds like she's just going to headbutt them, though. I mean, okay, so this uh, new reboot of Ghostbusters with the all-female cast, they need to add a fifth Ghostbuster, needs to be Jean Grey, and her only way of fighting ghosts needs to be headbutting them. This would sell like gangbusters. Do it, entertainment industry. No. Oh, well, okay, don't. But regardless. Why would you do that? But you know, I, why would you sort of shoehorn Jean Grey into an already established team set in a fairly realistic New York? For oh, <laughs> but I really do feel for Jean here because the fact is Scott and Jean have not had a lot of time to process this whole thing with Madeline Pryor, who looked just like Jean and the Phoenix, who looked just like Jean. I mean, they're just starting to really reconcile at all. There's been this whole thing with Cameron Hodge making Scott hallucinate different versions of Jean, etc., and so, for that reason, well, he's that's... not making him hallucinate them. He's just projecting them holographically. Well, okay, that too. But that's kind of why I like this annual because it really forces the characters to confront this whole thing. Right. First, though, they've got to figure out what's up with Quicks Quicksilver, and they've got to rescue Franklin Richards, whom he's kidnapped. And at this point, all the Inhumans come to the same conclusion, which is, oh, someone's causing trouble for the royal family. It's probably Black Bolt's evil brother, Maximus. And so they go after Maximus. The Inhumans, for no particularly good reason, and with the caveat that these are actually both settings that I'm largely unfamiliar with, remind me a weird lot structurally of Atlantis as it's portrayed in DC. Yeah, I was actually thinking the same thing. Like, down to the weird sibling rivalries. But regardless, they show up, and we do get, before they do, a little bit of self-narration from Maximus talking about how he used to be mad! And now he's got some machinery that projects his insanity and his depression on the people around him. Hence Quicksilver being sort of mind-controlled and being super messed up, and hence Scott and Jean fighting even more than they otherwise would be. In fairness to Maximus and to Scott and Jean, things were already pretty terrible, and the rest of the X-Men aren't helping. So you get things like Beast saying, This Attilan is really something, Genie. I still can't get over how much the old blue area has changed. Can you? Whoops, because she wasn't there. That was Phoenix. And that was where Phoenix died, too. Like, 
even if she had been there, that's not really the kind of thing you just drop. It's true. Like, especially if she had been there. Well, you know, there's that whole thing with beast strength and intelligence that we'll get to later. Maybe it's that manifesting. But regardless, there's a big fight, as there often is. And in this fight, as they finally do break through Maximus' force field and defeat him, Marvel Girl damn near sacrifices her life trying to save Cyclops. And to be fair, a very confusing fight scene. But regardless, you know, it's her going out on a limb for this guy that she's super pissed at. So that's cool. Man, this scene is so incoherent because at some point they managed to break down the stuff that Maximus is using to do the telepathic mind control. And he mentions he's going to have to switch to good old mechanical mind control. This is a really rough annual. I've mentioned that. It's really rough. Which he exerts over Black Bolt and Medusa's having to hold him off. And somehow this manages to get through to Quicksilver where nothing else would. No. That would be to set lover against lover, a thing that must never be. Medusa and Black Bolt, as close as my crystal and I are, were. As truly and purely in love as Cyclops and Marvel Girl, as they are, were, before the pain came between them, as the pain comes between all loves and loyalties. Wow, cheer up, emu kid. Like, seriously, his hair should be way more in his face. And also, no, he's been making drum noises. <laughs> emu as opposed to emo, yes, I'm yes, down with that. angry dinosaur children. But regardless, the fight is wrapped up, thanks to Jean, like I said, almost sacrificing herself to win the fight and to save Scott. And the Inhumans are super obnoxious and self-righteous about it, and they're like, well, Black Bolt could shake off Maximus's influence. I don't see why Quicksilver can't. He's clearly just a villain again, which is kind of weird, because it's an entirely different set of influence. Like, it's an entirely different mechanism. It totally is, but by this point, Quicksilver has once again escaped. He's shaken off the mind control, and he's just run away to very sweetly find Luna and kiss her on the forehead and vow to use everything in his power to make things right with her mother. So that's kind of nice. Yeah, it's not going to happen, though. Well, you know, things will get better and worse and better and worse. It's comics. And meanwhile, Scott and Jean, for the sake of some resolution, decide to head to the scene of Jean's doppelganger's death, which has to be the worst date setting ever. But, you know, I can see that definitely giving them some actual closure, which is something they've been desperately needing. Like, I kind of just want to go through this uh, dialogue here. Jean, about Phoenix, I know now she... It wasn't you, but when I loved it, I thought it was. And it loved me, and enough to die for my sake and the sake of all the universe. I like to think it learned that in trying to impersonate you. It's the same kind of crazy, generous thing you did yourself today. And Jean kisses him and says, I'm not making you any promises about tomorrow. But for tonight, at least, I understand. Let's go for a walk, so you can pay your respects, and show me the place where your phoenix died. They're gonna have butte sex. I like this scene, you know? I mean, they're actually probably not. Yeah, that would be awkward. But I do like this scene. I mean, it's some resolution we've been waiting for for a long time. And really, with all these ghosts that have been kind of hovering around their dynamic, it's putting some of those to bed. It's getting to the point where they can just be Scott and Jean... To as much of a degree as one can. I mean, obviously, Madeline Pryor will complicate that later in Inferno. But still, I thought this was really nice. Well, and it's a good thing that they're putting some of that to bed, because honestly, they've got enough problems in real life right now as we go into X-Factor 21 and, again, the lead up to the fall of the mutants. So, at this point, as this begins, Angel has just recently died, his funeral was interrupted by anti-mutant picketers, and they have finally figured out that Hodge has been massively, massively manipulating and gaslighting them. That being Cameron Hodge, who was Angel's college friend, who had been the PR guy and general business planner person for X-Factor Investigations. And who's a total asshole. Now, they managed to corner and confront Hodge back at X-Factor headquarters, and they're confronting him with all the things he did, and he's just straight up denying half of it. And they try to even show him, to prove to him what he did, the computer that projected a hologram of Dark Phoenix that damn near drove Cyclops insane and almost made him kill Marvel Girl, and of course it doesn't work. It's like when you bring your car to the mechanic and it doesn't make that noise again, except with a lot more evil and hallucination and mutant powers. But it doesn't even matter because they're going to fire him anyway, so, you know, from Cyclops, you haven't even been listening, have you, Hodge? Well, listen to this. We here at X-Factor are less than pleased with your recent advertising campaign. We feel it has increased the anti-mutant sentiment prevalent in this country. The time has come for us to seek a public relations firm that has mutants' interests at heart. We will no longer allow you to use Warren's money to fuel your campaign of bigotry and hatred. Go! Clean out your desk and get out! You know, Scott Summers is stern but fair, and I respect that in a supervisor. It's a weirdly, like, civil and business-like firing for the guy who's literally been trying to drive him insane for 21 issues. It's true, but, you know, Scott's a calm guy, so I I respect that. Like, we're going to hire a different PR firm. That'll show him. But this is really cathartic. Even just seeing them finally call Hodge out on his bullshit, 
is just really nice because we, the reader, have been seeing him doing terrible, terrible things for a long time. And to have X-Factor finally acknowledge that and actually take a stand against him, even just a carefully worded HR-approved speech about him cleaning out his desk is still pretty awesome. Oh, man. And uh, they don't even know the half of it. Caliban, meanwhile, uh, we mentioned earlier, has been running around with X-Factor and he is distraught. Caliban has been feeling more and more powerless and helpless. He was unable to save his people, the Morlocks, during the mutant massacre. And he was unable to help in the fight against the horsemen in which Beast was critically injured. Caliban was useless, and Bobby and Hank almost died. Caliban was helpless in the tunnels of his own people, the Morlocks. And when they were attacked, the Morlocks also died. Caliban needs power. Caliban needs revenge. Helplessness. That is what killed Angel. In the end, it will kill us all. This is foreshadowing so hard. Like, especially the angel illusion. Oh my god, I had forgotten how well and organically and what a slow burn Caliban's buildup was. It really is, because when we first meet Caliban, he's such a gentle, innocent, almost child. Well, the first time we meet him, he abducts a teenager and tries to marry her, but... Well, you know, in a very innocent sort of way. In defense of the writing, he was originally supposed to be a teenager himself, but still, that's really not appropriate. Don't do that. But regardless, seeing Caliban just get more and more bitter, just get more and more broken by the state of the world, by what it's done to the people he cares about, and to see him seek out power at any cost so that it doesn't happen again, this is positively Shakespearean, what we see with Caliban, which I guess is ironic given the source of his name, but still. It really is, but not like Caliban Shakespearean, which is extra ironic. Meanwhile, uh, Iceman offers to sort of help bridge that gap by teaching Caliban some hand-to-hand combat, and... If only he could leave it at that. Hodge, meanwhile, has not, in fact, cleared out. Or at least he's still got access to X-Factor surveillance. He is watching from a control room with some great supervillain commentary. Ready provisional plans Beta and Tau. Our mutant heroes are about to receive some bad news. If they get out of line, we may find it necessary to discredit them. I love that this entire conflict is being played out so far in bureaucratic terms. Yeah, but you know, if the only power you have is bureaucracy, which, well, Kaj can do more, but for now, then you can still do some damn fine supervillain speeches about discrediting people, and Hodge does, and I respect that. How do you think this would escalate, like, if Hodge weren't actually an actual supervillain? If it were just, like, bureaucratic nitpick war? Oh, like, we may need to audit their taxes. But that's not going to work, because there is a member of X-Factor who is actually a CPA. Oh, well, then I guess the only alternative is supervillainy, so there you go. Yeah, this is what happens slippery slope a slippery ice slide in fact in this case hey hey. and so yeah the reading of angel's will does in fact happen and x-factor is there and hodge is there and it turns out that angel did in fact leave all of his money to x-factor specifically x-factor as administered by cameron hodge ah shit and so x-factor is understandably furious because they know that hodge is up to no good but they don't have any actual evidence Iceman, who has almost lost control of his powers as a result of an unfortunate run-in in Asgard, loses control of them and almost freezes the room. Beast is still very ill from his encounter with Pestilence. They have to be sort of herded out. And on the way out, they run into our favorite intrepid reporter, Trish Tilby. Now, Trish has been hounding X-Factor from the start, basically saying, hey, what's the deal with this whole X-Factor versus X-Terminators thing? When you say hounding, I assume that you mean aggressively investigating an organization that is in fact actually shady as fuck. Uh, yes, exactly that. Like, I am solidly Team Trish. I mean, she has crossed some fairly serious lines, but on the whole, she's basically on the side of good journalism. And this is the scene, I think, where X-Factor first sees that, because they've been very frustrated with her so far. But she mentions, sort of offhandedly, something about Cameron Hodge having been involved in the incompetence hearing that enabled the hospital where Angel was being kept after his wings were injured to amputate his wings, which, of course, led directly to his suicide. X-Factor starts putting two and two together, and they realize that Angel's death could be largely laid at the feet of Cameron fucking Hodge. And his amazing ability to use bureaucracy for evil. But he doesn't just have bureaucracy at his beck and call. He's also got killer robots, as it turns out. Well, dudes in killer robot suits, certainly. Whatever. And yeah, they appear. Now, these are some soldiers we haven't really seen before. And I gotta say, I love their character design. They're wearing these green suits of robot armor. But the way they're designed, you know, they have their little goggle eyes. But there are also these large eye-looking things on their face masks below that. And something around their neck that looks like it could be mouth. Basically, they look like they have giant smiley faces on their misshapen robot heads. And that shit is creepy as hell. Yeah, it's ghastly. 
It totally is. And they very loudly identify themselves as mutants and start yelling death to humans and they shoot the place up and like critically injure Trish Tilby and kill a bunch of people. As you may recall, this is a tactic that's been pretty commonly practiced by the right. Yes, the right being the organization that we've only seen alluded to. They had kidnapped Richter, one of the young mutants that X-Factor rescued, and had been sort of torturing him and trying to use his powers to make it look like mutants were going to destroy San Francisco. Yeah, well, publicly set him up as a supervillain who was holding the city hostage, and he turned out to be a scared child tied to a machine while being tortured. Yeah. And that's basically how the right works. If this sounds familiar to you, this sort of double play and PR spin, there's a reason for that, which we will get to shortly. Exactly. And so X-Factor goes into action. They figure things are chaotic enough that they can use their powers in their civilian guises without giving away their deception. But all the public really sees is a bunch of mutant powers going off and a bunch of people dying. There's someone else watching, too, and that is our good friend Apocalypse, who is very taken with Cameron Hodge. Excellent. A human of rare conviction, of narrow passions, of poisonous hatred. An adversary worthy to test the strength of our kind. Watching at the same time, back at headquarters, are the kids that X-Factor's taken in. And no sooner has the conflict escalated at the reading of the will, when the same smiley face power suits break into X-Factor HQ and go after the kids. And Richter is freaking the hell out. Now this makes sense. We haven't talked much about Richter's background, so I think this is a good opportunity to do so. Richter was born and raised in Mexico. And he's alluded to having been involved with some crime families there and to having had a very rough childhood because of that. We also know that the right kidnapped him and forced him to use his earthquake powers to do bad stuff. And basically, as part of that, tortured the hell out of him. This actually reminds me vaguely of something I want to go back to briefly that I totally forgot to say in episode 80. I know, I'm sorry. I know this is obnoxious, but I feel strongly about it. Someone asked us a question about specific powers that we found obnoxious or cutesy, and one of my huge pet peeves that I completely forgot to mention at that time is when someone's powers correspond with their given name. Oh, so right. So he's Julio Richter, like the Richter scale, because he has earthquake powers. Right. Like, really? Really? Like, it's not a big deal when it's a codename, and it's not a big deal when it's, like, powers that someone, you know, develops scientifically. Like, I'm cool with Otto Octavius being Dr. Octopus, because the name could reasonably have been an inspiration, for instance. But, like, with this, it's just gratuitous, and it bothers me. It is pretty weird. But regardless, Richard has ended up at a point where he's terrified of his powers. He's really scared to ever use them, but whenever he gets scared, he starts using them accidentally. What he's even more terrified of is the right, and at this point, he is ready to shake down the entire building on them, himself, and all of his friends if it means them not taking him back again. Dubiously, luckily for everyone around, Leech is also there. Leech can cancel out powers. He cancels out Richter's just in time for the right to shoot them both down with what turn out, fortunately, to be tranquilizer darts. Caliban tries to run in and save them using the karate that Bobby has taught him and discovers that it is, in fact, absolutely useless against big metal power suits. He is also tranked but not taken. The kids are the ones who the right's there for, and they've got special gear set up for them already. Yeah, they have these helmets that nullify their powers that are specifically coded to their individual genetic markers, and they're all labeled. And what interests me is that all the characters have code names like Skids, Leech, whatever. Rusty doesn't, so his helmet actually says Fire Fist. What? You know, you know that the comics universe is sick of you not having a code name when the bad guys who kidnap you have to give you one. And to be fair, it's not a very good code name. It's a really bad code name. It's a really, really bad code name. At least it's something. I don't think it's really ever referred to again. But regardless, the Smilers, the smiley-faced right soldiers, take all the kids and start getting the hell out of there and going back to wherever it is they came from. And as they do, a character who's been missing for quite a while makes her way back in and just barely manages to avoid being taken, and that is the one and only Tabitha Smith. That's right, Boom Boom is back from Fallen Angels. And she's here for revenge. Well, at this point, she's here just to sort of come back and see what's going on, and what she finds is things are kind of insane and in chaos. And she doesn't really know how to react to this. Now, Boom Boom is very much an every-girl-for-herself kind of person. And so her default go-to style is not to stick her neck out to save some people, some of whom she hasn't even met before, and yet. Can I talk for a minute about how much I love the way Louise Simonson writes Boom Boom? Please do. Now, we talked in episode 82 about Simonson taking over on mutants and sort of the aged-down versions of the characters and teenagers. And, man, that mandate is so disappointing 
for a number of reasons. And one of them is that I love the way she writes the teenagers in X Factor. And I especially love the way she writes Boom Boom because she is one of those characters who kind of self-narrates and it really works for her and whose relationship with heroism is so reluctant. She's like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not a hero. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to rescue anyone. I guess I'm going to rescue them. Damn it. I love her sort of super reluctant grudging heroism. Like, I really want to see a really reluctant, contentious, boom, boom, Quentin Choir team up at some point. That would be hilarious. How amazing would that be? I would read that miniseries so hard. I would write that miniseries so hard. (laughs) Marvel, if you haven't redeleted our numbers, call me. Exactly. So, yeah, she uses her time bomb powers to um, distract the various right soldiers who are on guard and sneaks onto the plane that the other young characters have been taken onto and sort of hides in there. They're just trying to figure out what the hell's going on and hoping she can somehow save them. The kids at this point are headed to the Wright's quote-unquote school. It's sort of a fancy science museum that has their facilities underneath it. And the science museum itself is set up to like test for the presence of mutants. And so like there are school field trips there at the same time that all of this is happening. Which is kind of nightmarish, but, you know, it's also kind of clever because you have all these Museum of Science and Industry style gadgets and the kids start using them. There are evil science types watching. And if they detect something that might be a mutant power, then yoink, they kidnap that kid, too. It is specifically the Arlington Interactive Museum of Science. So kids in the Northern Virginia area, you know where to worry if you get taken on a field trip. Exactly. So the kids are stuck there. In the meantime, X-Factor has skedaddled from the chaos outside of the will reading. They've gone through the Morlock tunnels and they're trying to get back to their headquarters. Where they discover Caliban, who is almost dead of a tranquilizer overdose. Yeah, and he'd overheard the Smilers saying that they were heading to some place involving Arlington, so they all suit up, Caliban included, because he's getting more and more frustrated at not being able to help, and head there themselves. Boom Boom, meanwhile, she's improvising here. She's trying to blend in with the other kids, and she can't get to any of the areas where stuff's actually happening, so she decides to take a cue from movies she's seen and sneak through the ventilation shafts. The kids who've been captured are freaking out, understandably. Especially Richter. He's talking to the other kids. Look, they call it testing. They'll wire your brain and shock you and stick you with needles and fill you full of drugs. And in the end, you'll do anything if only to make them stop. Angel was a hero, right? But when he couldn't take it no more, he killed himself. They started with me again. I won't be able to take it no more either. So Boom Boom, uh, helped by those handy ventilation chefs, does eventually find Richter. He's wired into a giant machine and clearly not feeling great. She manages to bust him out using some time bombs and good old-fashioned distraction. Not to mention good old-fashioned moxie. And blows his helmet off of his head. And they run the hell away successfully for a bit until they're stopped by, as it turns out, the commander of the right. Now, this is a guy we've heard referenced before, but we've never seen him. And his voice is specifically familiar. Richter is so scared of this guy that he's about to jump off a catwalk to get away from him when the commander takes off his helmet and reveals who he actually is. And if you were guessing raging douchebag and PR professional Cameron Hodge, kudos, you are correct. That's right. He's not only a racist businessman, he is a racist supervillain leading a racist organization with racist dudes in racist robot suits. You know who else is kind of racist? Hmm. Apocalypse. Sort of. I mean, I feel like he's an equal opportunity hater of anyone weaker than himself. He uses the survival of the fittest rhetoric, but he is basically a mutant supremacist. He's just not an all-mutant supremacist. He's got his own weird system even within that. He does. And what he has done at this point, which he's been working on in the background of issues for quite a few months, is he has finished building his fourth horseman, Death. Now, specifically, he has finished Death's final crowning feature, which is Death's Wings. We still haven't seen Death fully at this point. You know, we've got a pretty good idea who this is going to turn out to be, but it hasn't been confirmed. And Apocalypse is teasing it so hard, even as he talks to him. He's training him on, what, what does he say? An obstacle course, much like the ones upon which you honed your power in your youth. You have but to journey through it your way. Which presumably, since we all know this is Angel, right? We've all figured out at this point that this is Warren Worthington III, is going to involve ineffectively dodging objects in the air. But no, it totally doesn't, because the other horsemen are making fun of him. Like, wait, he's just a dude with wings. Come on, we can fly on our weird horse things. And he just rockets through Apocalypse's equivalent of the danger room 
shredding the crap out of all of the steel and metal in his path. Just a straight path. And it's kind of a fantastic allusion to and inversion of Kitty Pride's first trip through the danger room where she just closed her eyes and phased and ran through everything. Right. What we're seeing here is Angel in his new form as death turned from a creature of precision and grace and deliberateness to a creature and ineffectual dodging and ineffectual dodging midair turned into a creature of pure and utter violence and destruction, a living weapon. He is nothing else other than a weapon. Well, we're sort of seeing him. The actual reveal is going to come next issue. And oh, what a reveal it is. So that brings us, in fact, to X-Factor 23, which has one of the best, like all of the issues have titles at this point. And this is one of my favorites, which is just you say you want some evolution. (laughs) X-Factor is sneaking into the Arlington Science Museum. Gene and Scott tell Caliban that no, we can't kill the Night Watchman, even if he does have a gun. Caliban's just getting more and more, I want to say he's getting more and more violent, but really he's just getting more and more scared, and the way he responds to that fear is by trying to lash out, essentially. They try to question the security guard at the front desk, but as soon as they start to ask him questions, he gets really scared, and then he literally explodes. Right. And they realized pretty quickly, like, the right must have implanted something in their employees such that if they're going to give some information away, they die. Man, that's like the worst contract ever. I'm pretty sure there's some kind of OSHA violation there. And Beast is furious. Beast, in fact, flies into a rage and throws a desk through the next door, charging ahead and completely destroying their chances for its stealthy entrance. This is weird. This is not typical Hank McCoy. Hank McCoy is a guy who usually looks before he leaps. He thinks. He's one of the strategists of the team. And now he's just diving in headfirst. And Cyclops and Iceman actually call him out on it and ask what's gotten into him. I've been getting stronger ever since Pestilence touched me, but every time I use my strength, it seems harder to think. I need more data to tell me what's up, and the past few days just haven't had much time for scientific thinking. Maybe it just comes from eating my Wheaties. And this is a plot line that's starting right here that we're going to see develop in a really big way over the next very many issues. And it's so sad and screwed up. Yeah, the whole, like, every time he uses his strength, he gets dumber. I mean, that's that's really sad to see that gradually happen. It's like freaking flowers for Algernon or something. Well, and it's especially dark and weird with Hank because he's a character who's consistently been defined by his intelligence, by his analytical thinking, by his quick wit. And by that, as a diametrical contrast to his codename and physical demeanor. Mm-hmm, exactly. And him losing that, like, it, it feels like watching someone slowly die. It does. So as X-Factor is just sort of barreling through the Arlington Museum of Science and Industry, Hodge has just gone into full-on supervillain mode. He's got the kids all captured and sort of strung up in weird machinery, and is just doing this big gloating speech about how, you know, mutants and humans are at war, and it's time that the mutants realize that they should be slaves of humanity. Like, I kind of love Hodge as a supervillain. Like, I mean, I hate him because he is an evil, horrible person who does terrible, terrible things to characters I care about, but he's so good at being evil. What I love most about Hodge as a supervillain is how amazingly, like, point by point by the book he is. I feel like he's read some kind of training manual. Like, he's gone through some of Leslie Nope's binders on supervillainy or something. Oh my god, do you think he has, like, big color-coded binders with little tabs? I think he totally does. Super organized? Uh Uh-huh. Do you think he makes collages? Maybe on his free time. I don't think he's really the Leslie Nope of supervillainy, though. I I feel like he's kind of getting into Hellfire Club craft night territory there. But actually, my other favorite thing about Hodge is that even when he's in, you know, the full armor, even later on, actually, when he's just a head on like robot spider legs, he still has his glasses. I love that. Yeah, because it's such like a normal, like day to day, just a regular Joe kind of thing. And so having that humanity like contrasted with the increasingly fucked up forms that we see Hodge in and the increasingly fucked up actions he commits is really chilling. And they've got to be a personal affectation by the end, because by the end, he's completely taken over by the transmode virus. And I imagine that that pretty much takes care of things like astigmatism. But he's still wearing the glasses, even though they're like spiderweb cracked across one lens by the end. This is years from now. But yeah, he never loses them. And it's really cool. And it's a really good visual marker. And, you know, we first start seeing that playing out here where he is wearing them in his ridiculous power armor. Oh, yeah. He sees that X-Factor's coming up. So he goes to gleefully confront them because, of course, he's planned for this eventuality as the kids try to find their way out. I love the way this works because X-Factor is lured by the Wright and Hodge into what turns out to be a chamber of pure ruby quartz. Where do you get that much? How do you put it together that seamlessly? 
I don't know, but I'm really impressed by it. And Hodge just seems so proud of himself for having planned for every little eventuality. I have to kind of love the guy, even as evil as he is. Because, you know, Ruby Quartz, Cyclops can't blast through it, so pretty good trap. We get the next in a series of X-Factor versus Cameron Hodge confrontations. So Cyclops confronts Hodge. Hodge, you engineered the amputation of Angel's wings. Caused his suicide. Kidnapped your charges, created anti-mutant hysteria, threatened San Francisco, massacred New Yorkers, and the world blames you mutants. Quite a litany of success, is it not? And then he floods the room with knockout gas, because again, Hutch is such a by-the-book supervillain! Uh, but it turns out the X-Factor was just playing possum, Gene put up a telekinetic shield, and so there's a big fight, which actually causes a power outage where the kids are, so they escape and head that way. And, okay, so this fight here, it's a pretty good fight scene, you know, as usual, we won't go into too much detail, but two things. One, Hodge is wearing the most ridiculous Ruby Quartz armor over his, like, supervillain power suit thing. How does that even work? Yeah, it's like this weird boxy orangish-pinkish covering. It is so amazingly dumb-looking. Like, I cannot overemphasize how utterly stupid this armor is. It's so dumb and so ridiculous that it kind of comes around the other side into just being amazing. Yeah, it really reminds me of the armor that um, at the beginning of the Dune movie where uh, Sting and Captain Picard have a knife fight. It reminds me of the weird, like, holographic-y energy armor that they were wearing there. Except that stuff actually had an excuse for when you bend your arm or whatever kind of overlapping, and Ruby Quartz, which is very hard, does not. How much more awesome would the Dune movie have been if all the actors in it just played their signature characters. I mean, I know there'd have to be some time travel, but like Special Agent Dale Cooper as the Chosen One, you know, Sting and Captain Picard, etc. I love everything about this plan. Let's find David Lynch and make it happen. I haven't actually seen the Dune movie, so I can sort of maintain the personal faith in the idea that this is the real thing, because I also just have a lot of trouble believing that Kyle McLaughlin plays roles that aren't Special Agent Dale Cooper. I just have trouble believing he's not himself in real life Special Agent Dale Cooper. I mean, he's on Twitter. He's a little bit Coopery. Well, there you go. He seems affable. He's the mayor of Portland in Portlandia. Yes, he is. So anyway, in this fight, there's another great verbal confrontation between Cyclops and Cameron Hodge. That's some of my favorite dialogue in the entire era is when Scott and Hodge talk. Hodge? Why? Why what, mutant? Help Angel create X-Factor, then destroy him and it? Warren was a fool. I was at school with him, was his friend, and then that accursed freak grew wings. He was a mutant. Homo superior? Ha! I was wealthier, of older stock, attended the best schools. That should have made me homo superior, not an evolutionary dead end. Hodge, times have changed. You can't stop progress. You're fighting for stagnation against the natural evolution of man. Without mutation, evolution, monkeys would never have come down out of the trees. And now Homo sapien cages monkeys, as Homo superior will cage us. Hodge, give it up! We don't want to cage you. We only want to be left in peace. Peace? <laughs> I will give you eternal peace. Oh my god, Cameron Hodge's supervillain rhetoric is so good. Although, I kind of love his motives. Like, they're awful. He's a terrible, terrible, terrible person. But the fact that he's basically a supervillain out of old money entitlement. Yeah, and out of jealousy at that not buying him everything he ever wanted, which is to be the best, to be the most special. I would like to point out this election season the restraint that I am executing in not making political allegories around this right now. <laughs> Legit. Right? And so the fight continues. Some of the right soldiers clamp this kind of power-dampening belt on Iceman, figuring they can take him out of the fight, but they have not reckoned with the fact that due to Asgardian magic, his powers are really, really high. So all the belt really does is grant him greater control over them, which he then uses to freeze Cameron Hodge's Ruby Quartz armor. And that creates a weak point in it. Now, normally, Cyclops would not be able to blast through, but as we know, Cyclops, in addition to being the master of guilt and optic blasts, is the master of geometry. And he is able to find, basically, this needle-thin point where his blasts can get in, ricochet around the armor, and kill Cameron Hodge. We should talk about this. We should, because this is some gruesome stuff. But at the same time, after everything Cyclops has been through, you know, losing one of his best friends and finding out this guy was the one who drove him to suicide, everything with Gene and Madeline and Phoenix and Cameron Hodge, again, trying to manipulate him into going crazy because of it. And that Hodge has now, at this point articulated that his goal here is straight-up genocide, and to this end has been kidnapping and torturing children 
and is about to kill them. Like, I feel like this is fairly solidly in the natural consequences state, but it's also worth remarking. And we've talked about this before in context of both X Factor and X-Men, you know, about the mutant massacre, about stuff around it. This is an era where the X-Men kill, or at least try to, and that's relatively rare, or at least relatively rare that they do it without a lot of deliberation and moral consequence. And here again, it kind of makes sense. Now, it turns out that in fact, Scott did not kill Cameron Hodge because Cameron Hodge just sent a robot duplicate of himself, as one does, to fight X-Factor in his place. By the book, supervillain, I'm telling you, he's got the manuals. He's somewhere pouring over his color-coded binders and chuckling. Yes, he is. And who else is watching and chuckling is, once again, your friend and mine, Apocalypse. He's really impressed with what Hodge is doing, testing the strength of X-Factor like this, making sure that they are indeed worthy to survive. But he's more interested in testing his own horsemen against the fourth of their number, and this is where we finally get to see, in his full glory, Death, Archangel. Yeah. Now, if there was ever any doubt that Warren Worthington was the one who was transformed into death, that doubt's pretty much dispelled. I mean, if nothing else, the silhouette's very similar, you know, dude with wings, but the particulars are not. We need to take a minute and talk about this character design because, man, there is a lot that Simonson has done that I love that's really brilliant. And we've talked a lot about characters who could really only have been the results of one specific artist. I mean, Warlock and Bill Sienkiewicz is kind of the signature example who had to have been created by that artist to continue to work with any artist. And I think Archangel is that with Walter Simonson. I have so much trouble imagining any other artist who could have designed and executed this character the way that Simonson does and made it work. I mean, a superficial description of this guy. Let me just tell you about him with no image in your mind. He's got big wings made out of knives. He is dressed in bright blue with hot pink highlights and accents and a full face mask with a skull drawn on it. That sounds super dorky, right? Like, it sounds like something that would not work at all. Sounds like something out of the worst 90s image comic ever. No, it's awesome. And again, this is, you know, Simonson at his best hits this perfect note that's very, very clearly Kirby-inflected and influenced. They can really see that influence in the design and the lines and, and shape of the suit. But also, just so uniquely, Simonson is that, that grace and fluidity. It's great. I liked it so much that I painted the design on myself at last year's World Naked Bike Ride. Did you have bladed wings? Does that count as not being naked, though? Uh, if I had bladed wings, I think the paint's okay. But yes, I'm going to go ahead and say I think Archangel may be my favorite X-Men character design ever. I just freaking love it. It looks like nothing else out there. It shouldn't work, and it totally does. Not only is his character design effective, but so are his powers. Death is able to take apart the other three horsemen like they're kids. He pins them to the wall with his feathers, which have neurotoxin in them. He shatters War's armor, essentially re-paralyzing him, almost snaps Famine's neck. And Apocalypse is immensely pleased with this because Apocalypse likes it when his children fight. He does. Specifically, he likes it when he can see who's stronger than who. And so he was looking for a leader for his four horsemen, and that is clearly death. That is clearly the man that used to be Warren Worthington. Apocalypse is having a really good time this whole arc. Like, this is a man who is really happy in his work. I think he is. Like, I feel like, you know, he knows he does a good job. And at the end of the week, every Friday, he'll just give himself a little present. Like, he gets a chocolate truffle, even though he's trying to watch his figure. And a Martini, just the way he likes it, and he sits down with a cozy blanket and watches some Netflix with his robot cats that look kind of like cats, but not really. That's not actually a thing. Does he actually have robot cats? Because I could see that being a thing with the ancient Egypt connection. I I'm not saying he has cats. I'm just saying he probably has cats. And he's doing this in the ski lodge, right? Yes, he's doing this in his ski lodge. Of course, it's very cozy. There's a nice fire in the fireplace. He pulls back out his turtleneck sweater that he's stopped wearing to work because, you know, he's shooting for a more dignified approach these days. But still, it's what he's most comfortable in. I think he's got a celestial made Snuggie. You know what I want now? Like, what I really want? You know how they make, like, superhero Snuggies? Mm -hmm. Can you imagine an Archangel one? That would be rad as hell. Right? That would be so amazing. Why is that not a real thing? Well, regardless, Apocalypse has decided that now that his horsemen are complete, now that they have a leader, Apocalypse decides that it's time to accomplish the goal he's been working toward this entire time. To test the mettle of X-Factor directly. So X-Factor, who is currently catching their breath after their dubious semi-victory against the right, remember Cameron Hodge has disappeared, they learned that they've just taken out a robot duplicate of him because Cameron Hodge is hilarious. No, Cameron Hodge is terrible, but he is meticulous as a supervillain. And just as they're checking to make sure everyone's still got all their limbs and the kids are okay, the adult members of X-Factor are teleported away in an effect that the kids recognize as the same one they've seen when Apocalypse's three horsemen went in and out. Now, Boom Boom, who wasn't there for that because she was in Fallen Angels at the time, just says, three horsemen of Apocalypse? That's not right. Weren't there supposed to be four? 
Ooh. In fact, Tabitha, you are so terrifyingly correct. And that leads us into the Fall of the Mutants for X-Factor. This one's going to be all about Apocalypse and, more importantly, all about Warren Worthington, Archangel. And it is an amazing story that I'm really excited about covering. First, though, you've got questions. Shiny Alice asks on Tumblr, Are the characters in the post-Secret Wars titles the ones from Earth-616 or Earth-1610, or are they native to this new universe? The answer is yes. Most of the characters coming back, as far as we can tell so far, are from 616. Not all. Uh, there are a handful from 1610. We've got Miles Morales. We've got a bunch of others. I think that the Reed Richards from that universe are there. Spider-Gwen and Old Man Logan, who are from different universes. I think there might even be some Secret Wars characters who carry over. And obviously, there are some continued Secret Wars series, like X-Men 92. Whether those are the exact same versions or versions from the discrete universes that those sections of Battle World were pulled from, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think it's fair to assume that it's going to be a mix of the two. Yeah, and I think uh, part of what Secret Wars was designed to accomplish was creating a Marvel universe that included, you know, most of the characters we were all familiar with from Earth-616, but also being able to sprinkle in characters from other alternate universes that seemed like they might be good fits. So, for instance, seeing Old Man Logan with the X-Men is going to be rad, stuff like that. Our next question is from someone who asked a question two episodes ago and whose Tumblr handle I still don't know how to pronounce. R-E-V-Z-J asks on Tumblr, who is your preferred third Summers brother? Yeah. And Revge is asking this in the context of the Age of Apocalypse miniseries, which did, in its continuity, confirm that Adam X was, in fact, a Summers brother. Now, we know that Gabriel is the official third Summers brother of 616. He sucks. Yeah, that being Vulcan. And Worst. so because of that, I'm actually going to have to go with my favorite third Summers brother option being Adam X, the Xtreme. I mean, OK, I'll get it out of the way. Adam X is completely ridiculous from his name to his aesthetic to his personality to basically everything about him. But when you think about it, so was Cable when he was first created, when he was just, you know, a big fancy robot dude that Rob Liefeld made because he thought a fancy robot dude would look cool. And so I feel like there's potential in Adam X. I think you could turn him into someone interesting. You take the background of, you know, him being an unknown Summers brother who escaped Shi'ar space after Deken fathered uh, him, etc., etc., you could do something interesting with that. Now, you would probably have to do something about that name, of course, but even so. What I like about Adam X over Vulcan is that he's not defined entirely by his connections to the Xavier School and to the Summers family. With Gabriel, pretty much everything he did was a reaction to the sins of Xavier or the inadvertent sins of the Summers family. With Adam X, he's had his own history. He's got a personality that's very different from that of Cyclops and from Havoc, and he could kind of do his own thing and add an interesting wrinkle to that dynamic. So basically, Adam X for president, 2016. So my answer to this is somewhat different. And my answer to who my favorite third summer's brother option is, is nobody. I love the idea of Sinister just dropping that plural, dropping, you know, your brothers just to fuck with Cyclops's head. And this launching this, you know, decades of speculation and him finally, you know, someday calling Sinister out on it, saying, you know, what the hell? And Sinister just being like, no, you don't have another brother. I just, I mean, I've, I've got like some extra clones of you and Alex in jars in my basement, but. If you really no, want it's, one. It's, yeah. <laughs> you know. You want a brother? I can get you a brother. I can get you a brother by three o'clock. There are ways, dude. <laughs> 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 you did that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So anyway. Yeah, like I like the idea of the third Summers brother as a MacGuffin that's never realized. Like I think he's much, much more interesting as an idea than he is in any possible execution. Well, speaking of ideas that are executed, that being possibly my least effective segue ever. Wow, yeah, that was not a good one. Our show is totally supported by its generous listeners, and one of the things that listeners who support us at a certain level get is thanks from a variety of fictional forces and or characters. So let's talk to the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you could run from your past, Nate Bunnyfield. That it would be enough to lose yourself in a weekly hour of continuity and commentary. But little did you guess in your mad flight that you were playing into the hands of the very ghosts you sought to escape. Nice. Rachel, want to take us out? Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men come out on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men, evolution recaps, and much, much more.
Our show is completely listener-supported and has no ads and is made possible by our generous supporters through Patreon. If you'd like to become one of those supporters, please check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be breaking from our regularly scheduled programming as Miles finally, finally joins me on BattlePod for the ninth and final installment of The Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts. (laughs) 